It is estimated that 75% or more of all silent films have been lost forever. Negligence, greed, malice, and war have overseen the erasure of the majority of films' earliest years. But all hope is not lost. Long-forgotten films are being rediscovered in the unlikeliest of places. For the first time in over a century, we are able to return to context these previously unknowable works. It is our job to write the next chapter of their histories. Ashes to classics, rescued from oblivion. Welcome back to Ashes to Classics, the silent film podcast where we're loud about silent film. Um, welcome back to our, our second season or our little micro season. This is season. actually going to be a, a longer season than our previous one. I think we have seven films covering kind of the high points or at least uh, the key figures of Weimar era German cinema. Yes, and we will say explicitly, we, for shorthand, we're going to call this the, the German Expressionism um section but we're also going to go into the the nuances of what is german expressionism and what is not german expressionism um, and how things overlap and i will note at the beginning as i'm sure we'll come up again german expressionism is not to be confused with german expressionism german expressionism and german expressionism are two completely different things which when i was doing some research into german expressionism um, a while ago for a video i put together on um, metropolis i was shocked to find that out that german expressionism is completely different from german expressionism yeah yeah there's a <laughs> Oh, I'm assuming you mean in terms of like the filmic iteration of German Expressionism, which we shorthand yes. just talking about German Expressionism, and then the wider uh, movement of German Expressionism in art as a whole, which started which, in like which the ended eight, late 1800s, the First World War, yeah, yeah, and was like seen as being like outmoded. And I'm sure we'll get to this. It was very much the trying to grasp the legitimacy of film as as a as an art form, um, linking it to an accepted artistic aesthetic was was seen to be the way forward. So expressionist kind of like aesthetics were actually out of vogue but were brought back into vogue in a different way um, with, with cinema and we'll talk about what those aesthetics are yeah. i'm sure um in line with today's film uh, which we'll get to at the end of the podcast which is from morn to midnight a film from 1920 and a really kind of like if you want to describe what german expressionism is this is a great text for that because all of its elements are there absolutely um, yeah and we're definitely going to focus a lot on German Expressionism here because that's kind of like the the high cultural recognition for yeah. uh, this era of, of German film and maybe of silent film in general. Like if you talk about the early 1920s in silent films, a lot of the primary examples that you're going to get from people are going to be German films. Like second to yes. probably only Hollywood, the, the German film industry is probably the most lauded nowadays in terms of mm. the the output they had in in the 20s if you say to people like name a silent film that you've seen i think you're either going to get something that is german or something that is um chaplin i think it's it's, it's that overlap there right maybe a keaton but it's going to be something like um faust or um, nosferatu or caligari and then modern times etc etc yeah these films especially the expressionist ones consistently make the list of like the best silent films or even some of the best films of all time uh as, yes. as we kind of see so for this next season i thought it would be good to do kind of an overview of the key players in that particular era of german cinema obviously uh we're going to touch on a lot of the high points the the recognizable names that some of which you mentioned there but we're we're going to do so through the films of course that 
of, yes. of these filmmakers, which were lost over time and have since come back. And we found them. Hmm. Yes. Sometimes in Japan. Uh, more <laughs> on that later. Yes. It's very interesting. So let's start with uh, Expressionism being kind of like our, our, yeah. our high water mark here. Uh, Stephen, what do you know about German Expressionism? Um, I know quite a bit, actually. Um, so I'm going to stay a little bit quiet because I, when I went to Berlin in October... I went to the Berlin Film Museum, um, which was awesome, and I picked up this book, which I'm going to now shake at the camera, which is useful for those that, that are watching. So it's um, the shortcut series of, of film books. I do like a really good, kind of like digestible, but um, well-written and like researched looks into areas of cinema and, and, and film practice. And I bought the one on German Expressionism because I liked the German Expressionist films I saw, and I read for it recently to put together a video introduction for... Um, the letterboxed film server were doing like a, a group watch of, of Metropolis. So I read for that recently. So I, I feel like I know quite a bit, but not as much as you. Having listened to your introduction on Metropolis, I would say you do know quite a lot already going in, which is wonderful. And uh, yeah, obviously, as that kind of pre-familiarity we talked about with expressionist films, some of the heavy hitters, uh, there's definitely, I think, a certain idea a lot of people have. But I think the background of it is also... Very interesting because uh, mm. there, there's a lot that ties into the expressionist movement in film, very specifically with that particular time in Germany and what was going on in the aftermath of World War One and yes. leading up to the 1930s. Which will be linked to our film today. The sense of like cultural isolation and fear of the other is is a thing that very much comes up in there, and is a, a key tenant of, of expressionism. The thing that I'll note is I think that with German expressionism, I think the the outward aesthetic is so immediately obvious that it's commented on a lot. Right. I want to point out that it is also the thematic layer of it of dealing with the uncanny dealing with the psychological dealing with the strange and the bizarre and the horrific in an almost kind of like romanticist style um which is why you get your 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 nosferatus and, and your fausts etc is also core to the genre yeah uh, i'm going to be pulling a lot from a particular source here in terms of my mm -hmm. uh, consideration of german expressionist as an ideology i did a lot of reading uh, from Siegfried Krakauer's uh, seminal text From Caligari to Hitler, uh, which yes. was written... I almost bought that in the same place, but I was just like, ah, I'm going to buy this shorter book instead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I bought that anticipation of this, and I did a lot of reading here, so I'm going to pull a lot of his observations and consider yeah. here. I will say, just as a disclaimer here, I don't completely agree with Krakauer on everything, but I think... Yeah, I, I read, like, he's, he's um, summarized in the Ian Roberts book that I read, and there's a bit in there being like, seems like he overstates a lot of, like, direct causal connections. Um, yeah. But it's just, like, an interesting overview of the period. Well, it's definitely, he's, it's very much a kind of persuasive work trying to draw a direct parallel between the plights and the psychos uh, psychology of the German people leading up to mm. World War II and reflected in the cinema of the time. And it's like, yeah. mm, maybe, but but it's, <laughs> it's definitely stated with a kind of certainty and confidence that's, uh, I, I think you could poke some holes in. But nonetheless, yeah. I think it's a very valuable source, and I think there's a lot of interesting conclusions he draws there that are worth discussing as a kind of wider extension of what okay. we see in the trends of the German film in the 1920s. Yeah. So 
to start with a bit of a history, though, we'll just give like a broad definition here, whatever. Uh, yeah. German Expressionism is a term used to denote a period in the early 1920s where, as a result of post-war economic isolation, the burgeoning German film industry boomed by turning inwards and producing a bevy of artistically inspired works, which prominently advanced the medium through inventive art direction, camera work, and somber themes. So that last part is yeah. definitely that thing you're hooking on. You know, the first two, we see the things in terms of the art direction itself and also in camera work is a big facet we hook on to as tenets of German Expressionism. But that thematic yeah. element is just as vital uh, in terms yes. of dissecting what these films are about and what makes them so distinct and how their influence extended as well, it should be said, as, uh, because the legacy yeah, of yeah, German yeah, Expressionism so is very obvious in subsequent eras of film throughout the world. So the, the German film industry first coalesced in an attempt to match the aggressive propaganda efforts of the various allied productions during the war. Uh, in 1917, and specifically due in large part to an initiative from uh, Erich Ludendorff, that, that same Ludendorff, who of course was a key figure in the attempted beer hall putsch, he worked with the studios to kind of uh, centralize the various small production companies going on, and that resulted in one of the largest film production companies in Germany being formed, Universum Film AG, or UFA, as we know them. As a side thing as well, uh, I'm going to do my best to pronounce all of these German names <laughs> authentically, because I did so well on the, the, the English ones when we did Richard III there. Mm, you did, you did, you did. And I, and I know an, an eensy bit of German myself, so uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do my best throughout this series to at least give them one, one good pronunciation before I refer to any... Uh, anglicized names. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I preemptively apologize for my terrible German pronunciation. I did a year of German at school. I was very, very young, and I was very, very bad at it. Mm -hmm. So that post-war kind of consideration of things is going to be a key factor in determining a lot of yeah. these senses of expressionist films in particular here. Uh, some of the early examples that we've come to define the movement are noted in uh, Der Student von Prague, uh, which was first released in 1914, but also remade later on as well. And uh, De Golem, both of uh, those two being uh, Paul Wegener films. He was a key actor and then later director and did a number of films in Hollywood as well later on, which is also going to be a key thing yes, you see continually. Yes, a lot, a, lot, a lot of migration out because obviously key events in Germany, um, which will be alluded to. Uh-huh. So those are kind of pointed to as the primary, uh, you know, typical examples of the expressionist mm -hmm. movement finding their way into German cinema. But they tend to get overshadowed by a particularly striking example that came out in 1920, directed by Robert Vine, called Das Cabinet des Dr. Caligari. Yeah, one of the one of the greatest movies. Yeah, so we talked about. Caligari a little bit before in a previous episode. I think on our very first one, our primer episode. Yeah. Can you convey to me, Stephen, the impact of Caligari? Not not just as an expressionist film, but as a a kind of cultural juggernaut in general, so to speak. Yeah. Um, I mean, as a horror fan, I think like the the uncanny um, cinematic language of Caligari as like a piece of psychological horror is is like hugely influential in in film beyond that point in terms of like the subjective um, and the psychological inner state. Um, what I will say is I forget the exact quote, but it's like because of Caligari, pretty much every major German film for the next ten years was filmed on sets um, internally because of what was achieved there. So this 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 set 
literally set the set, set the stage mm-hmm. for how how interesting it would be. And it was obviously a, a film of wide, not just German acclaim. I mean, the most strange kind of like acclaim thing of it was you will not have seen this movie, David, but um what was oh what's it called? The unbearable weight of massive talent. Oh, the Nicolas that... Cage film. <laughs> yeah. One of the key plot points in that is that he wants his daughter to watch Caligari because it's a movie that means a lot to him. And they watch and, and she's like, No 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 and, and I think a plot point is that they both watch it and do enjoy it. And the reason why it alludes to that is it's telling that the movie is of the status where it can be throwaway, like insert film name here like Casablanca or like Citizen Kane. Um Caligari is is, is a behemoth in, in film because of it being so artistically interesting, it being a different kind of film. The film we're still we're talking about today is very aligned to it in set design, so it is not maybe as unique as it appears to be, but doing it right, doing it so beautifully, and doing it in a way that I think links into narrative just makes it this this wonderful piece that leads to a whole decade of similarly styled or similarly created films. Well, that's kind of the interesting thing, isn't it? Is like we, we point to Caligari often as yeah. this kind of just all-encompassing uh, high point of what German Expressionism is. But most of the other films that we kind of tend to point to or see as kind of high achievements don't really align in the same stylistic sense, at least to the yeah. extremity that Caligari does. The only other film I can think of that kind of matches it in terms of these distorted, you know, painted backdrops and overly made up uh, characters, these twisted, nightmarish kind of renderings of a, a dreamscape made reality yeah. is is the film we're talking about today. And yes, I've, completely. I, I've certainly watched a lot of expressionist films in preparation for this. And yeah, n- nothing else kind of matches that energy or, you know, vision. So it was a huge international hit and, you know, kind of really yeah. put... Germany on the map for the cinema there and because of how the studios were coalesced and nationalized uh, it allowed them to keep pace with the American studios and also because they had to develop internally as well because of yeah. the embargoes that were going on there that allowed the German industry to kind of like become an industry during the mm. end years of the war which would then allow, once things opened up back again in uh, 1920, uh, Caligari being one of the first films uh, to kind of come out out of the country again. Yeah, and I would say artistically, like Caligari, because it obviously has those very intentionally painted sets, and part of that is painted on lighting or colours that will reflect to, to create the something unique lighting, and it's also like painted shadows and stuff. It has this completely intentional look that you're not just you're just not getting outside of that film at that point. And I think that's why it had that ground appeal because it is so curated, it's so stunning, it's so wonderful, because it's in these wonderfully controlled circumstances. And that's why they're like, we're gonna film on sets from now on, because we don't have the budget of American cinema, but we don't need their big lighting setups if we can use art creatively. And that's gonna come up with the from morn till midnight as well, of how you can make a feature of what are lower budgets compared to what would be then international film? Mm-hmm. But not to stick too much on the uh, aesthetic aspects of expressionism, okay. getting back to what we talked about. The, again, the, the kind of the key thing as well with Caligari is that it has this distinct messaging, particularly a kind of anti-authoritarian thread that comes through uh, in, in the text and as an expression of the wider. Yeah. The, two, the two are intrinsically linked there. The style, the vision of the film, the expressionism is expressing yes. the theme. 
And th- that's why the film works for me, certainly, is because it is like the aesthetic is fantastic and it is so intertwined to the narrative, what it is trying to say. I would say that most people will agree with you. That's that's kind of the whole deal. Why why the whole movement works in general and Caligari works as a pillar of it. Yeah. Uh, and it works for Krakauer in particular, uh, again, pulling from him. So in, in his yeah. book, Krakauer distills the primary nature of German expressionist films into three distinct groups. Uh, I think I mentioned this to you off recording before, but now I'm going to break it down, uh, you yeah. know, what I was alluding to. So in the three groups, he kind of organizes the different flavors like of expressionism. There are the tyrant films, the destiny films, and the instinct films. Caligari is one that most uh, most aligns with the tyrant films. Uh, he gives some additional examples in Nosferatu and uh, Fritz Lang's uh, Dr. Mabuza de Spieler, or uh, the, the yeah. Gambler, as these kind of key examples of uh, German fears regarding tyranny taking over uh, in the kind of shaky post-war environment. There was definitely a lot yeah. of... Um, I mean, the, the, the Weimar Republic, as it coalesced, was not something that everyone was behind i guess so to speak it was a very mm. shaky government in in its short time of existence and a lot of the films of that era reflect that kind of uncertainty towards authority and towards government in in general and that's where a lot of these themes that Krakauer is pulling from run through here at least the parallels that he's drawing to link back to the history of of the prior expressionist movement i mean when reading about this it seemed that um the, the Expressionist movement actually very much looked forward to and was very pleased at the outbreak of the First World War because they, they, they felt they wanted some apocalyptic event to shake up things. And then there's the idea of being like something in theory as opposed to something in practice. And obviously that being a, a huge wound to the movement, the realisation of what it actually meant. Um, and that, I think, leads into the, the thematic regret and the, the sombre themes that you, you put so nicely earlier. So we have this kind of like reactive sense of expressionism mm-hmm. that is kind of like the, the the darker side of what came before right here's a quote from Krakauer, by the way in terms of uh, considering this more what the, the conclusions they drew in this film type the germans of the time a people still unbalanced still free to choose its regime nursed no illusions about the possible consequences of tyranny on the contrary they indulged in detailing its crimes and the sufferings it inflicted so that's kind of uh where, where i'm playing yeah. from there in that conclusion so the second type of film that he talked about, the Destiny films. So two films in particular, Krakauer highlights, and those are Der Mutter Tod, or uh, as it's aptly titled in English, it's just called Destiny, fitting enough. That's a Fritz Long like film. Yep, Fritz Long film from 1921. <laughs> and Murnau's iconic Der Mann, which is, of course, in English, The Last Laugh. It's a bad translation, by the way. Um, a movie I still haven't seen, sorry. That's okay. M- maybe you will before next week. Uh, that might be a good idea. I, I, yeah, I'll try to. Anyway, uh, the, the Last Laugh is another one of the high watermarks, and Murnau, obviously, one of the key champions of uh, German Expressionism, I would say. I don't know if you would necessarily... Would you agree with that? So I was drinking, but yes, I would agree. I would agree. I would agree. <laughs> yeah. Murnau obviously made uh, Nosferatu as well, one of the... Uh, mm-hmm primary go-to examples for German Expressionism, but uh, Faust, another film you mentioned uh, yes, previously. Yes, Faust. Mm-hmm. And before he came over to uh, America in Hollywood and produced a number of Expressionist-inspired films there as well and, and really helped, kind of one of the first wave of the emigre directors to come over and really shape the subsequent decade for uh, the industry. Mm-hmm. So the Destiny films, just using Fritz Lang's film for a primary yeah. example, Destiny, just literally... 
it's a vignette-based fable in which uh, the titular death character, Dermudatad, which means the tired death, allows a forlorn young woman three attempts to secure her lover's fate by partaking in several preordained historical trials. They don't go well, and she ultimately, like, fails, and that's kind of this uh, overarching message of destiny. There's this inescapable yeah. sense about it. And the inescapability of certain, you know, conceptions in, for German cinema is a recurring theme uh, in a lot of these here that, again, ties back into that somber, kind of uh, almost cynical nature about how things operate again very influenced by the post-war trauma yeah i suppose you would yeah. characterize it as and uh the last laugh is another example richly juxtaposes the opulence of luxury and prestige of perceived power with the craven fixations of hierarchical standards imposed upon mm. an impoverished population so the the central character there emil yawnings is a uh, respected hotel porter and he's very proud of this position. He's very, you know, taking it that it's in this uh, yeah. relatability he has to this upper elite world, what the, you know, kind of opulence of the hotel that he works for represents. But uh, as an aged man uh, who can no longer keep up with the demands of the job, he ends up being demoted and having his symbolic prestige taken away from him. And the expressionist vision of the film reflects this through twisted visuals and, you know, contorted perspectives and lots of uh, innovative camera work going on. And particularly in The Last Laugh, it really forwards the idea of visual storytelling by effectively using no intertitles whatsoever. That's one of its, like... Chief, oh, okay. Chief, yeah. Okay. There's, there's like, one thing that bridges the end of the film to the main segments that happens there, but otherwise it's entirely told visually and no breaks in the language. And that was obviously a very impressive technique and made a lot of, made a lot of noise for people in Hollywood in particular. That, yeah. was, that was kind of the big film that got Murnau the attention to come overseas. So Krakauer points to uh, numerous other examples of German films codifying yeah. uh, values of authoritarian rule, not the least of which were significantly popular serials from the uh, Friedrichus Rex films, uh, which obviously you can tell by their title were kind of glorifying portraits of the Prussian ruler Frederick the Great. But more significantly, he points to a string of films which, through characterization of vice and temptation as uncontrollable manifestations of rebellious instinct, uh, indicate a return to systematized order as the proper means by which the balance of peace can be restored. So these films, these instinct films, uh, they were kind yeah. of what I was referring to earlier in terms of the uh, kind of odd ends at which Krakauer approaches things. You know, he talks about these films, which are inherently anti-authoritarian, anti-tyrannical. Mm -hmm. But then there's also these series of films that are almost kind of invoking of and laudative of and even calling for a return of some kind of authoritarian structure you know to balance the moral situation of the country so to speak which i guess can be a really insidious combination of like disguises one when you're, you you think it's so clearly against a thing and then it masks that thing as, some, as something else and as an alternative mm -hmm. and, well and, and this isn't like an uncommon thing for films to do. Even yeah. at the time in Hollywood, there, there's a number of examples I can think of where there are films that depict the vice and, you know, the indulgences and stuff as a means of, like, coming around at the end and, like, condemning them, you know, in a return yeah, to yeah, some yeah. kind yeah, of yeah. puritanical rightness of, of society. So it's, fool, it's not... A Fool on His Money being an, an early one that comes to mind. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a good one I think of. Uh, one, one of the primary ones I think of, at least in my mind, that was very clear, was... Uh, 
uh, Garbo film, Flesh and the Devil. But in a similar vein, the same thing of like these, you can think of the trends of the, the, the vamps, the vamp character stereotype in Hollywood films, were very yeah. much these representatives of these fallen women leading men astray and yeah. such, and how the, the, the real virtue is at home with your traditional wife and such, etc. I was... I was going to mention this later, actually, um, because a, a few of the shots in um, From Morn Till Midnight reminded me of this, of these of these, these beautiful shots in not only German film, but I was even think of it a lot of these, like, front-lit female faces that just, like, take up just, like, the entire screen. And there's a bit in the Berlin Film Museum which is just, like, an, an ode to the women of German cinema, basically, of, of, of that period. It was really, really cool, being like, yes, all the major names of, of making the films are, are men, but the people at the heart of the films that made the films that were these archetypes, and it talks about some of the more negative archetypes of it, were these leading or kind of like ancillary ladies that literally lit up the screen, but then were also used as plot device in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, that, again, seems key to it. I guess an obvious example in that case is like Bridget Helm in Metropolis, I'm assuming. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So there was, there was this wonderful little, like, I, I said, Sizzle Reel simplifies it, but it was going through um, key figures and obviously had the the, con- the contextual notes around that you could, you could read through. Really, mm-hmm. really cool, really, really cool. But yeah, uh, a subsect of these instinct films were another thing Krakauer called the street films or Strassenfilme. Uh, ah, okay, so I was reading, I, I, I've read things that alluded to this and I wasn't sure what it meant, so this seems useful. So it, it was like a, a series of films that follow a kind of similar template to originally a film from uh, Karl Gruner called Die Strasse, which is just the street. Uh, and... <laughs> which is so like, like, like Fellini's La Strada then. <laughs> so it's yeah. like, uh, there you go. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it sounds nicer in its uh, original language, but it's it's really just a very plain... But yeah, yeah I mean, yeah, it's, yeah. it's an apt title because it is, again, kind of the, about this metaphorical temptation. It's a film where it's essentially just about... The, the husband, you know, who is tired of the home life, the kind of plain comfort of his regular wife who is there cooking him dinner every day. It's, the Sounds film is like bookended. From morning to midnight. Yeah, yeah. Again, this is, this is a pattern you see in many of these films. And so he, he rushes off to all of the great vices that the city has to offer, you know, money and women and sex and drugs and all all that great stuff yeah but it's all really a nightmare it's it's the it's an awful thing <laughs> that's going to corrupt the, you and degrade the dare your... of its time yeah and and so ultimately the you know film ends on a message of you know finding the comforts back home being in the in the bosom of yes. your own I, traditional I, I living building to interesting very very interesting yeah so uh the way Krakauer kind of considers it though he sees this as kind of like this need for like a kind of overarching authoritarian imposition to mm. you know contain this moral need so to to reinforce this uh standard of morality across the society so to speak and it's and it's the lack thereof with the dissolution of the the Kaiserreich that has opened the Weimar era into all of these vice and temptation so to speak to link to like wider political thought, there's a really um, great piece by Mark Fisher in his like seminal book um, *Capitalist Realism*, where he he criticizes a strain of supposedly left-leaning cinema of basically these are, these are films that that do politics for you as a way of a replacement political action. And a lot of these, and the particular example he uses is *Wally* of this like this film that seems to be 
anti-corporate but comes from this large corporation so it is the way of being like corporations can take on anti-corporate values as an aesthetic and therefore the viewer gets that out of their system by watching it and actually doesn't do anything and i think you could apply that back to that idea of like these vice things of by engaging in the vice in a cinematic way that life through vices live through you cinematically so in a way that you don't engage with it but you still get that thing tickled off and then you're given that kind of like wraparound message at it so that seems mm-hmm. very much in line with that way of thinking of films as replacement for action as a way of diluting certain actions that the state doesn't want you to do mm-hmm. I, I think that's definitely the case you see that in a lot of uh, a, a primary example with the hollywood is like how the the production code implemented these very strict yes. you know ideas of how you you had to have a certain film this way like you can't show these things in the end the bad guys have to be punished they have to be killed there's no room for wiggle room there etc but it was still it allowed a lot of filmmakers to express more subversive things through that. Yeah. So, but but that's like more like the opposite of what you're talking. Whereas in in this case, and I think especially what Krakauer believes for these instinct films in in particular, is that they they're very much using those you know I guess hedonistic desires yeah. that that the audience is longing for and looking for in media and escapism as a vessel for delivering conservative rhetoric. Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. And like I said, I, th- I think that's not exclusive to Germany either at the time period. I think there are a lot of uh, re- American madness films that is, is, is what comes to mind, like, hugely. Like, that, that is, like, the whole reefer madness idea of being like, look at this, look at these, like, bad drugs and stuff. Like, that, that is, like, a whole a whole logic of, like, propagandist film. Mm-hmm. So, obviously, it's not, like, a blanket application either, but mm. there is a the trend of these this, these street films in particular. There's a lot of where it's like, oh, the, yeah, this is the formula. The, the temptation of the city the street leads to moral decay and ruin and often in a very kind of leading in a tragic ends in particular in the german films i've not seen sunrise for for quite a while now but does that does that like fit in with like a style of that or like a more artistic end of that i think it does in the sense that it is it's another film where it's like a presumably wholesome husband is mm. tempted away from the traditional virtues of marriage by a corrupt and blatantly evil woman you know yeah but the the ultimate bent of it is not as like kind of uh, mm. tragic and cynical it, it has a redemptive sense to it there is a okay. there's a in in sunrise in particular there is a sense of forgiveness and overcoming these as opposed to again as as crack our deems here this sense for a need of a kind of overruling force to mm. you know impose the morality of the culture onto yeah. the, the people so uh in his examination of the early era of german film history krakauer yeah. alludes to a number of factors which signaled the decline of the industry's output from the middle of the 1920s onwards yeah we tend to think of german expressionism as covering like the whole of german output from this time period the silent era of germany certainly but it really was just from like 1920 1919-ish until like 1925 about and then the types of films were different and obviously and in that time period there were also a variety of other kind of films that were being made at the time you know there were like big costume epics and such that were also very prevalent very popular at the time comedies were also being produced you know they just haven't survived in the cultural conscious as much but i i I guess that's in the same way we have such a particular view of what soviet film is but i'm sure that like most of the films being made in the soviet union at that time were not quite of that that style of like specific film language and editing that that we so associate with the movement i I mention this all the time but i'm i'm so struck by every time i'm in france and you see 
a country's wider cinema outside of the cinema that makes it to other countries, you realise being like, oh no, cinemas are not as specifically nationalist as they seem <laughs> because mm-hmm. they're just like this whole run thing it's just the things that embody that because that was the um the thing about Rashomon isn't it of like Rashomon why, why that was was so popular it's, it seemed like a this is the Japan that the world will understand and I mean I read a book about it the the, the BFI Japanese in my book that goes like and then they made this attempt to make those films going forwards of these are our films that are very Japanese look at that which the wild end result of that is it led to a Japanese pink film, so a pornographic movie being sent to a major film festival because they're like, ah, it's one of those Japanese movies, we'll send it off. They're like, oh god, there is a wider cinema here we're not ready for. And um, <laughs> someone got very, very fired because of that. It was fascinating to read about. <laughs> it's very interesting. But yeah, so for German cinema in the 1920s, it really dropped off in the mid middle of that there. And that is largely because of the economy stabilizing a lot more was kind of one of the big things there. The influx of uh, money that came from the Dawes plan offset a lot of the need for people. To be more specific, um, in times of economic depression, I guess, guess, many people will, there there won't be a significant drop off of a need for or desire for entertainment, especially in the case of somewhere like Weimar Germany, which had a crazy inflation problem, as most people. Well, know. I was I was reading about this actually because I was really. And I'm going to link to the movie now because it's not actually of the plot. But um, so like most people in the British education system, I'm sure, like the American one as well. Like this period of Germany is 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 a huge part. The, like the pre the pre war years, as they are seen, is very mm-hmm. much as opposed to the end of World War One. It's very much seen as like the precursor to to the Second World War, and the the iconic image is the hyperinflation period of I'm so using these images of people like burning money to get heat or pushing around trolleys of. And I was really struck by the imagery in um, Morn Till Midnight of these, like the stylized money being thrown around and collected. And I was just like, wow, like that, that it's so interesting how that, that throwaway image of money, though not supported by the text is so linked to what we see in actual historical documents. And then looking a bit more into it, it was notable that the the film we're going to w- talk about today was made at a period of slight stability of, of the German economy because, yes, the First World War was hugely damaging to the German finances, but because of war debt and reparations. And actually, unlike um, France and countries around, the, their like landscape and infrastructure was hugely, hugely affected. Germany wasn't to the same extent, so therefore didn't have that initial debt. So it's wild to me that this film has this initial use of money of being like, money, it's not that important, blah, blah, blah. And you're supposed to be like, I can't believe he's throwing so much money away. And then like nine months later, you'd watch that same scene and be like, oh yeah, look at all that paper going, that's nothing. That's just, I did, it's not an answer to the films. I don't want to put it then, but it was just, was a striking historical image to me because of how nine months later that image looks so completely different and we can't not look at it that way now. Mm -hmm. For sure. And again, like, yeah, it's, it's also hard to remember how, small of a time period that is really in the kind of the grand scheme of things of that hyperinflation but how much it had an impact of because it was so astronomical you know like millions upon millions of marks for uh, a loaf of bread and it's so visually compelling like all those textbooks where you see that because we know what money is and what it's like those images are forever seared into my mind forever Mm -hmm. but that's the interesting thing and why the industry was ironically flourishing at this time of great great depression because uh, again despite this widespread poverty 
the solace of entertainment uh, and art doesn't go away inherently with mm. that, especially and because this money is effectively worthless to so many of the people anyway, they end up just spending it anyway on such things, you know, indulgences, so to speak. So, which links back to the statement about like the nascent cinema of like cinema was trying to establish itself as artistic, but was not seen as that by many at that point. It was like a, a sideshow attraction. So it makes sense that it, it becomes purely escapist, even in its artistic kind of aspirations. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was, it was very popular for all that time period again, until there was this sudden uh, windfall from the yeah. American intervention there and the Dawes plan coming in and propping up a lot of the German economy at the time. The film industry actually suffered for, uh, as a cause of that. Uh, oh, wow. And, and even more so because uh, American businesses were doing their best to get their hands into everything. <laughs> so Krakauer cites a number of attempts at internationalizing the industry through both an influx yeah. of American export pictures to prop up the sagging market after the stabilization and the literal American domination of the studios themselves uh, with forward-minded businessmen taking control of major studios such as UFA. So they ended up like taking over and becoming, you know, owners of it. And in part of the contractual agreements, they had to have a certain amount of American films shown uh, alongside the German ones there. And then also during the same time period where a lot of important German talents were leaving the country. Uh, this yeah. is again not not before like the big exodus and the regime change, but <laughs> yeah. people people such as Lubitsch, Murnau, Polonegri, and Emil Jannings, they all left the country allured by the desires of the, the Hollywood studios to capitalize on a lot of these yeah, you know, big I, German successes. I, I know you obviously know so much about Lubitsch than most people, but I'll speak from the more every person perspective here. Of I think in my perspective, and most people would see Lubitsch as. Hollywood director of Lubitsch is this, this this force of classic Hollywood. And it's, it's strange to think, though, obviously he is German, to think of it as part of the German cinematic movement. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to this a lot more when we talk about Lubitsch, because we have a whole episode we'll, we'll give to Lubitsch. Oh, I can't wait. Uh, and I'm very excited for that. But to, to give you a little teaser here, I would argue that Lubitsch is as instrumental a figure in terms of cool. defining how German film developed in the early 1920s as yeah. he was for defining how early Hollywood films were in the 1930s when he came over. Well, that's exciting. That's a hell of a, that's a hell of a thing. To yeah. go back to your um, America um, and, and Germany confluence, though, when looking into Metropolis, that's something that kept coming up, and Metropolis being this expression of two different kinds of cinema, of the aesthetic of America and the scale of America with the stylization of the German and the expressionist and, like, the perhaps apocryphal story of seeing the Manhattan skyline of being like, mm -hmm. that that's Metropolis and, and that's where it starts from that it is this this loving hate letter this idea of being like in in awe of the americanism but also has that kind of like simplistic value system wrapped around it being like but resist this kind of thing that 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 to and fro is great it's also interesting because i mean i, I said that the expressionist films kind of stopped and they kind of died off as a thing in in the yeah. mid 1920s but obviously metropolis is one of the enduring examples of the expressionist mm. movement that film came out in 1927 yeah. but it's important to recognize as well that metropolis lost a ton of money it was a oh, financial yeah, yeah, yeah. failure and <laughs> it's unbelievably so to the extent they chucked huge parts of it away that we have never found since and probably never will well we, we found most of it but yeah oh but when, I, I think it's very unlikely that we will ever see like find the rest yeah there's the what two missing segments remain i think yeah but but again we and we only found that 40 percent that was missing forever you know like 
15 years ago. Yeah. So, yeah. But it, it was it was a huge failure for the time and kind of easy to point at as an example of how mm. the expressionist movement was thoroughly passe by the time, at uh, the end of the 20s there. Yeah, 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 that's a really good point. Krakauer does assert, though, that the external factors are less uh, the culprit in terms of creating that issue than a uh, pervasive internal malaise from the German people now that the country had stabilized. Okay. Uh, he says, as important post-war films testify, the outcome of the desperate struggle for psychological adjustment was a general strengthening of the old authoritarian tendencies. The masses, yeah. that is, were basically authoritarian-minded when they entered the stabilized period. But the Republican regime of the period rested upon democratic principles that repudiated those mass tendencies. Prevented from finding an outlet, and yet too persistent to yield, authoritarian dispositions fell into a state of paralysis. Instead of breathing life into the Republican institutions, the masses drained themselves of life. They preferred neutralization of their primary impulses to the transformation of these impulses. The decline of the German screen is nothing but the reflection of a widespread inner paralysis. It's very compellingly written, isn't it? I can see why it's an entertaining read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's that's one of the things we're kind of alluded to earlier, where I'm like, I don't know entirely. Like, I'm not fully convinced of ascribing like mm. to to the whole populace that sense of like basically accusing the the German people of just saying that they were calling for an authoritarian leader to take over yeah I, there's there's a there's a passivity approach there that is um a little bit concerning yeah obviously obviously there's something to be said for how a, a certain amount of acceptance or indifference of the German people allowed to the the rise of the, the Nazis and Hitler's takeover but I, I don't fully subscribe to that belief of like yeah. it, it feels like it puts the blame almost exclusively on the populace. Ex exactly. I think it, it kind of like un just underrepresents the actual perniciousness of Nazism that is so key to its specific rise. Right. Not right. just a, a population in waiting for what could have been many things. Yeah, the, the systematic planning and overtaking of mm. the, the levers of the government and power to turn a, a Republican democracy into a dictatorship yeah uh, yeah uh it, it feels like it puts a an undue amount of blame on the people themselves mm. but i i don't think it is entirely unwarranted i think there's definitely an argument it's very interesting it's very very interesting um, yeah uh, again I, I definitely see some of the authoritarian tendencies in the german films but you again yeah. as he also states there's also an anti-authoritarian strain in a number of other films that comes through so and and as you have noted you see that authoritarian strain in, in other national cinemas that don't yeah. have the, the same national things happening so it, it more seems to be control like money or state control of art like wanting to use it as a way of, of, of pushing values as opposed to a wider like guider of, of cultural and cultural morality Mm -hmm. So that's the uh, the basic breakdown there I have of the German industry and the yeah. general perception of it from, as far as expressionism goes, from, you know, like 1920 till about 1925-ish or so. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the industry did go on thereafter, and there was obviously additional high points, but yeah, the, the, the quality definitely degraded over time as their, yeah. their most prominent figures kind of left many of whom we're, we'll cover here in the next uh, episodes yeah because i i think doing it that way at least for me l learning about a history through central figures you know kind of key players helps me get a wider grasp on things yeah, so that's I, kind I, of my, my theme 
and I guess that helps more so. Maybe it's my Hollywood bias talking <laughs> that, that I tend to be drawn to directors and stars and such. But I think that's going to help give us an overview of mm. the high points of the German film industry because they did also have their own kind of star system in and of itself okay. and their own major leaders. Again, we've talked on a number of them here. You know, they're big artistic directors they came to and Murnau and Pabst and Long and yeah. such. And then you also had your big stars of the time. You had, you know, Emil Jannings and you had... Bridget Helm, and you had Paul Negri, and you had Conrad Weitz, and such, and many of whom left, or many of whom stayed behind. Werner yeah. uh, Krauss mm. as well, etc. I've, I've got so many names to tell you about, Stephen. So many names to tell you very, about, very And I think by going through and seeing the industry yeah. through these um, perspectives, these key figures, as much yeah. as possible, yeah. it's it's going to work as a wider survey of the era mm. and kind of give us an insight into the enduring films and individuals of the, the era. Very cool. So is it time to, to discuss From Morn to Midnight? Yes. Let's talk about Von Morgan bis Mitternacht. Oh, very nice. A film which is very obviously based on a play. And I could tell that without <laughs> even looking up that it was based on a play. This could not be any more obviously based on a play. Yeah. Um, a, a recent play at the time, I think it was written in 1912. Yeah. I should have written that down, but I'm, I'm going to guess 12. It's a good guess. Thank you. <laughs> it, it, it was essentially translated almost directly from the stage to the screen. Yeah. Uh, not, not just evidently in how much it looks like a play, but in just the general production being moved as well. Uh, yeah. Just the whole outfit. That being said, I would now accuse this film of appearing stagey. If... No, it is theatrical, is, is, is how I put it. I think there are, there are stagey parts of it, but I feel... Remember on, on the Twin Geeks podcast when we talked about... Um, Oh God! What's I forget what the movie is called? The cocktail movie, the the Le, Le, Les Pans Terribles. That's it, Les Pans Terribles, which was so clearly based on a play. But as I as I mentioned, as did you on on that podcast, of uses the camera as a focusing device of how can we bring out the parts of performance so I can bring out. And I feel that that this film um, from morn till midnight does a really good job of of guiding the viewer and taking advantage of cinematic language to accentuate and to add to the theatrical. Um, it is a cinematic feeling film, very cinematic feeling, while still having like, it also, it's it's a nice kind of theatre. I, I like watching expressionist theatre on film. It feels cool. It still feels experimental. It feels interesting. I don't think it takes away the theatrical elements. I feel it's, it's really, really enriching. I like that part of it quite a lot. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I just, uh, I wanted to have avoid those accusations of it because there are so mm. many films from this time period that do feel like you plonk the stage show. I, I, I saw one yesterday. I mean, forget <laughs> this time period. I went to see Darren Aronofsky's The Whale last night, and that's so obviously based on a admittedly seemingly absolutely awful play, <laughs> and does not make it feel cinematic at all. So yeah, this is it, it's great therefore to go back to a hundred years ago and be like, this feels cinematic. Ugh. Yeah, it doesn't feel quite as cinematic, I think, as something like Caligari. Uh, no. Again, as, as a, it is going to be impossible to differentiate. It's an unfair market, but the same year, right? Same year. The same year, the same very distinct, overly, you know, like stylized, you know, nightmarish, you know, yeah. rendering of, of vision here. Again, and unlike anything else from the expressionist movement. Um, and this is a bit more out there, I'd say. This is like this is a bit more like abstract and strange. It's, yeah, definitely more abstract. It does, again, because it feels more 
expressionist, I guess, in the sense that we we're using like almost in a kind of like black box theater way in terms of like we're yes, on a yes, set, very very much, so. very much so, and it's asking you, the audience, to interpret these renderings of a doorway or a building, yeah, you know, or a street outside as a a kind of nightmarish reality. It is is putting that expectation on you in the same way that watching a theatrical production does because obviously it's a style that i love and like part way through obviously i would not obviously the filmmaker of this film is is abhorrent but it made me wish that i liked um dogville more the the last montreal movie which is just like entirely like is is that soundstage of like marked out like a cluedo board thing i do like that aesthetic of stripping things back mm -hmm. to the overt prop i just wish that movie was good but i don't think it is very good I thought yeah. first you meant the director of this film, Carl uh, Heinz Martin. I know nothing about it. Which, which, which I was like, oh shit, Nazi. did I miss something? Was he a Nazi? And <laughs> no, but Lars von Trier is but, a Nazi, obviously. And yeah, I wouldn't but, say that on, uh, on podcast. Look, there's going to be a lot of, you know, Nazi, yeah, eventual Nazis we're going to be covering here, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Welcome to a new podcast, eventual Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's, it's an inevitable overlap. Uh, I'll let you guess who did and did not end up becoming a Nazi as we go yes, through and, these films. And, and, and please, the, the, pop, the popular um, party game Secret Hitler sponsors, as we talk about, <laughs> the Secret Hitlers of German Expressionism. <sighs> Anyhow, yes, um, From More to Midnight is, yeah, very theatrical in yeah. the same vein as Caligari, but Caligari is a, a little more willing to embrace a, a I guess, a more realistic looking world. Dis yes. As odd as that is to say, the environment. Which is weird because, like, this is a more realistic film that takes place in more real world, be they ridiculous scenarios. Yeah. Uh, the, the premise, I guess, to yeah. uh, highlight that in is. In five acts. Yeah. It is a very simple story about a bank cashier who, who sees a foreign lady. Yes, who sees a, a foreign lady, an Italian woman, and is uh, thus kind of indoctrinated into the uh, indulgences of m money and vice in general. Mm -hmm. you know, and so he, he, yep, he absconds with a small fortune that he has stolen from the bank and proceeds yeah. to have various escapades through the city, each kind of marked which, with... Which he does try to use it to win the heart of that Italian lady, which has this really cool sequence where he there's this like amazing expressionist painting of her um, that's like an expressionist nude. And as, 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 as weird as it makes me sound, there's this really amazing sequence where it like translates that expression is nude to how he views her um turning her into a nude in this expressionist film which is a a, a salacious sequence but very well done <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah it's important to note that the each segment of the film is kind of marked by him seeing this woman usually performed by the same woman yeah is, is death usually this kind of like presumed working or like underclass figure um that maybe represents more simplistic values of innocence so there, there's this constant refrain of the the, the corruption, uh, the, the moral yeah. corruption of all of these indulgences and these vices yes. that he's going throughout here. And the film ultimately ends in a tragic realization of those ends once once they have kind of run out, so to speak. And then likens him to Jesus in a thing that's quite yeah. confusing. <laughs> <You're> like, okay. <laughs> like we overreached a little bit here movie um but hey it's a it's, it's a visually it's a very arresting ending narratively i was like sorry what <laughs> <laughs> so uh unlike caligari which feels like it uses that expressionist imagery yeah. to really underline these very powerful themes and ideas and fears 
from morning to midnight feels very blunt in what it's trying to get across. Blunt and yeah. vague. It's very much so vice bad, indulgence bad, lead to misery and ending uh, martyrdom. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's it's such a simplistic and thin narrative, like to a fault, but it's also really quite haphazardly told. Of like, there's like long stretches of kind of like, sorry, what and who's who and what's going on. Because I generally think the aesthetic is somewhat at odds with the narrative, and the aesthetic is so much more interesting, and the narrative and the themes of it are not in accordance with the really interesting parts of how the film looks and expresses itself. Because like when you watch films like this, because Again, it's the boss baby thing. If you, you watch Caligari and you're like, Caligari is the great one. And you're like, is that the great one? Because that's one that everyone knows. And it's like, oh no, it's the great one because it does this really well and this yeah. really well and this really well and this really well. And you go, no, this doesn't do that really well. Yeah, my, my ultimate takeaway and something I put in my own review of it was like, mm. if Caligari didn't exist, this film would not supplant it necessarily. No, no, no. It Yeah, the reason that Caligari was such an enduring success and remains so influential was because of the way it marries its themes and its yeah. uh, ponderings with the visual expressionism, whereas this is really expressionism tied to a very simplistic you know, messaging and, and moral. I think it would still last as a kind of enduring uh, yeah, it's, no it's novelty cool. of an observation. Again, I, I think it's an interesting catalog and extension of the expressive movement on the stage that was happening that obviously Caligari was also drawing from. Again, it just goes to show, see, Caligari was not just this individualist example in terms of yeah. visually designing things like this. There were other films, there were other productions that were happening, again, almost simultaneously that were doing uh, the same kind of thing. But that also then helps to highlight the great successes of Caligari in terms of using it to forward themes that are are still very potent as well. This feels very Edinburgh Fringe Festival to me. Um, to use a, a strange and um example of like when you go see some touring avant-garde theatre group doing a version of very traditional work, and you're like, well, yes, the staging was very very daring, but it, it is still that play at the heart of it. It has the kind of that feel of being like, we did a cool thing of a play, like yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it looks really cool, but um, that's that play at the centre. Sure is mm -hmm. just there. Mm -hmm. no, yeah, it doesn't necessarily uh highlight anything additionally by no but it looks awesome i will say so when 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 reading about general expressionism the thing that was noted is a lot of the stylistics were a way of like hiding um problems of budgets and like a lack of resources of not, not having the lighting setups that, that had in hollywood or in, in other film industries and in caligari from memory i don't notice that here there are parts where I'm like, this does look a bit kind of like scraped together and a little bit cheap sometimes. Um, I feel like I saw the seams a bit more. It definitely feels like a small production, uh, yeah. and I'm sure it was. I, I don't even know, you know, if a production company produced it. To be fair, um, it was not even released in Germany originally. <laughs> as, yeah, I know. As, I as far as that. any records go, uh, it wasn't known to be released in Germany. The only known release was in Japan in 1922. That's wild. And, and I guess to, to the history, that's where it was uh, ultimately found in 1959. Yeah. It was found at the Tokyo National Film Center and then uh, later screened in East Berlin in 1963. So, so, so cool. This is another interesting example of how a an industry that exports its cinema uh, mm. kind of preserves that cinema because they, the film wasn't even known in Germany even at the time of release, but it somehow made that it played to... into the mystique around Caligari, like the the lack of this film. Do you reckon Caligari was 
I mean, yes, it's great, but benefited from feeling even more unique than it actually was. Perhaps, but again, kind of as we highlighted here, I think it's not just the visual mm. style that makes Caligari so enduring and so impactful. You know, if it was, then this film would be just as laudable. But very obviously it's not, and it hasn't endured because no. of that. And it's not recommended this highly as a result of that. Again, when we, it's not like this film hasn't existed for long enough to become yeah. canonical. It just, it's not because it's, it, it, it doesn't have those same high points, those same artistic achievements you know no. from, from a thematic standpoint that's something like caligari or nosferatu or the last laugh does i feel this film is destined to be fascinating footnotes and i feel that, that that's where it comes it is it is the film that you allude to me like oh and this exists by the way and seek it out if you're interested but it, it, yeah. it feels completely un i mean i don't mean unnecessary it exists as in unnecessary does not feel like if you want to be to go through you do not need to watch this it is cool though i really like it I don't quite remember how I initially came across it because I came, I, I learned about it before embarking yeah. on this endeavor here. And I, and I think it might've been because I was looking at uh, filmographies. Uh, I don't mm. know if you recognize, did you recognize the main actor? No, I'm here? really, I'm, re I'm really bad at that though. I'm so bad at recognizing people. Here's the thing is that I would not expect you to, this is, this is such a niche thing for me. Ernst Deutsch had a bit of a, he he had a bit of a fruitful career in the silent era, but then dropped off like many others did. In, and he was in Germany. He also starred in uh, Paul Wegener's uh, *De Golem*. But most Which people, I need to watch. most people would recognize him from a prominent role he had in the 1949 Carol Reed film *The Third Man*. Oh, okay. So he he's one of the main characters there. He's like the the friend of. Um, Orson Welles' character there. He's got the, the yeah, cat. He's yeah, a very, yeah. very kind of malevolent looking character with that kind of wicked smile. Yeah, I know exactly who you mean. Oh, wow. Yeah. So cool. So cool. That's yeah, Ernst Storch. And so I, I remember when I watched The Golem, I saw his name in the credits. I'm like, no way. That's, that's really cool. I wonder what else he did. And it turns out he had a fairly prominent acting career in Germany. And this was, you know, one of them. And so that was very interesting i found and i think why, why i sought this out well obviously after that i saw the visuals i was like whoa whoa this yeah. thing looks incredible it looks amazing look how visually distinct this is so that's why this ended up being unlisted and then finding out it was also lost film at some point well that just made the interest even higher didn't it i'm, I'm gonna throw your a recommendation your way actually david because oh. i i was i was at um the wonderful home cinema in manchester at the weekend to go see All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, which is not what I'm recommending, but also you would love that as well, because it's, it's, it's a really, really fabulous documentary. And um, went round, they've got a little shop there, which has got loads of good stuff in it, and I almost spent so much money. Um, but one thing that was picked up, because it's my birthday on Friday, so I was um, was like, oh, I'll get a, a poster from here. Um, oh, they had they had a, oh, they had a, a Japanese poster for um, The Blue Angel, which looked cool as hell, but I'm like, I don't really mm -hmm. love that movie, but it's a cool-looking poster. They had um, a Soviet poster of Taxi Driver. I'm like, I don't want a Taxi Driver poster, but that Soviet poster <laughs> is cool as hell. But what I went for is a poster of a film that I really, really love um, that is a German movie, and I feel does feel very much rooted in expressionism, though it's also rooted, I mean, is a huge text in, in, in queer film, and um, it's based on a, a Jean Genet book. Quirrell, the, the Fassbinder movie, is a thing I think you should definitely check out. And I've got that, that wonderful Andy Warhol poster of it now. It is this ethereal, strange, basically proto-slasher, homoerotic expression um, that 
takes place in this kind of like unreality of stylized sets and it is speaking for expressionism a really brilliant movie that i think is like a a lovely in, in the same way that though it's different the devils feels like mm. the german expressionism on the grand stage this feels like the the indie art housey end of that okay interesting thank you for cool, the very cool movie. yeah i'm looking at it now it does look interesting fastbinder is a really really interesting filmmaker um, and a, a complicated individual. Again, another nominal legacy of you know yeah. the influence of the German film industry. So mm. nice little cap on that and see how thing how how that continuum of German expressionism moved onwards. Because uh, probably should have touched on this earlier, but obviously uh, the the other big influence beyond the horror films of the early thirties yeah. and onward of German expressionism is also the film noirs of Hollywood. Again, okay, large, yeah. uh, both in terms of aesthetics and in terms of the the somber, you know, themes and cynical kind of perspectives and such, film noir is very much a successor to German expressionism and is very much informed by a lot of the emigre directors who came over and made those. Yeah. You know, you look at some of the chief filmmakers who did a lot of film noirs, Billy Wilder and Fritz Long, and uh, yeah, there's that guy such. again. Yep, and uh, we talk, talk about uh, Michael Curtiz and such. They're all. Uh, German-born filmmakers who came overseas. Yeah, and and if I talk about like new German cinema of like if there's the like the the three key pillars of new German cinema, which feels weird to call it new now because like it is now so so very 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 old. So yes, Fassbinder, and obviously there is that link there um, with expressionism with some of his films. Wim Wenders is obviously mm-hmm. very very different, but I mean when I was when I was in Germany, I was obviously in countries on the edge of it as well, and I forget where it was. I don't know if it was Switzerland or if it was. I think it must be Switzerland. There was a, a Wings of Desire statue, and like that that post of Wings of Desire, like that kind of like of the angel in that Gothic style, again is like that carryover of, and then obviously Herzog, um, who is a very different filmmaker. But you think of the screaming face of Agira from Agira Wrath of God, that is again in line with. So it is it is so steeped in the DNA of German cinema and even like the new famous kind of German cinema going forward. Yeah, so I think it's another big reason why it's important for us to to highlight mm. this, especially as kind of like this next section of establishing the important hallmarks of uh, you know, silent cinema and how that influence is still enduring and we're, we're seeing mm. it in some of the films, you know, we still talk about uh, to this day. So next week, I think we'll be getting into a, an interesting looking one. Again, another piece of expressionism for sure. Um, yeah. And talking about one of the kind of key faces of, of the era, one of the main actors, uh, Emil Jannings. I don't know if you know much about him, but you will after next week. Good. Good uh, the, the film we'll be discussing is uh, Algol Tragorie de Macht, which is just a, uh, Tragedy of power. Our goal, Tragedy of power. I wonder, I wonder if it moralizes. We'll see if it moralizes. It's a science fiction film I've learned about. Which cool. Is, uh, interesting. We're going to have some more names to learn, some more history, uh, and some more mm. exciting discussions. Yeah. Thank you very much for joining me. Um, so obviously, a, a film that you're not going to watch, I don't even think you'd like it very much, but um, I'm going to be <laughs> in, in, inspired by Babylon. Um, there's, there's, there's a moment in Babylon where a, a interviewer turns to one of the main characters in the in the just after the transition to sound film, um, which is handled really well, really well actually, and just asks, "Do you miss the silence, Sir David? Do you miss the silence?" <laughs> I do. I do miss it. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, you won't have to miss it long because we'll be back next week with more silent film. So, um, thank you for listening. As always, please listen back to our old episodes. If not, some real hidden treasures and pleasures there to be found. And whilst you're looking around, you may come across a recovered film in some basement. They can be anywhere. Maybe you're in Japan and you find some, some German expressionism. So keep your eyes peeled, keep your ears peeled, and keep coming back to Ashes 2 Classics. Um, you can find me at um, the Stacks on Film, so please patreon.com slash Stacks on Film to support that stuff there and my wider output, and you can find David wherever fine Davids are found. Thank you.